pray with me. Lord, we do need you. We so desperately need you. So this morning, especially as we come into this topic, as we look out on the cultural landscape, our need for you is obvious, and we pray you would teach us. We want to know about being born again and living that out in this world. Meet us, teach us, lead us to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm going to be talking with you about how to talk about politics. And actually, not so much about how to think about politics. Uh, in November of 16, before the, uh, the last presidential election, I gave a talk called Puzzled by Politics that in many respects is a, is a perfect kind of hand-in-hand -hand message with this one, which is more about how, as followers of Christ, we should think about politics and what it does and doesn't accomplish and that sort of thing. This morning, the, the conversation is more about how to have a conversation about politics, and especially in the light of the, uh, of the sermon series where God has us, learning about his love for us and getting us ready to learn about how to love the people God puts around us. It's really about how to love the person that you're talking with about politics. We talked about this at our all-staff meeting this week. Uh, and I asked the question, so what, what would be the advice, what would be the suggestions that you would offer as I preach on Sunday about how to love the people that you're talking with about politics? And Brentley said, I think you can do a three-word sermon. Change the subject. <laughs> I love that. It's not actually how he lives it out, but I love that. I mean, all of us can appreciate what's behind that, can't we? I mean, this, this seems like... It is one of the most emotionally volatile, difficult to control ourselves in the middle of things that we can talk about. What is it that makes it so emotionally charged for us? For some reason, I was thinking this week about the coyotes that have been making their way up the ravine right behind our house during the past month or so. We've been, Sharon and I sleep with our window open um, all year long, so we've been able to hear them really well, and especially because they've come up really right behind the house. Uh, the last time it snowed, we saw coyote tracks in the snow. And I love it. I love hearing the, the sound of their call. Uh, coyotes call for two reasons. First of all, they use whines and yelps and one kind of howl to connect with the rest of their pack kind of check in with where everybody is. And then they use growls and barks and a different kind of howl to claim turf and to establish territory and to draw a line between them and the other pack. In other words, they're always talking about politics. It's what coyotes and people do naturally to claim our turf, and to draw a line, and to face off with another pack. That brought me to thinking about two really remarkably similar and dissimilar passages in the Old Testament. The first one is found in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 6. 
And it describes how people act when they lose sight of the presence of God in the midst of their dealings with each other. Jeremiah 5, 6, we could call this the wild kingdom passage. Therefore, a lion from the forest will attack them. A wolf from the desert will ravage them. A leopard will lie in wait near their towns to tear to pieces any who venture out. For the rebellion is great and their backslidings are many. That's who we are naturally. We're like a bunch of coyotes and wolves that form into our packs and square off against other packs and start to eat each other alive. The other passage is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. Startlingly similar and different. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's who we are, supernaturally. Able to live in peace, even with those who are really, really different from us. I vividly remember a painting that haunted me as a child. Uh, It was hanging right over the bed in the guest room in my grandparents' house in Salem, Ohio. And I remember looking at it uh, as a kid and thinking about it when we were away from their house. It is one of 62 versions of the same painting painted by a guy named Edward Hicks, who was a Quaker minister. And the painting is called The Peaceable Kingdom. It depicts animals with almost human eyes, and I think that's very intentional. A wolf, a lamb, a leopard, a calf, and others peacefully lying side by side in the foreground with a little child playing in their midst. That It is meant to be uh, an interpretation of this passage from Isaiah 11. And then in the background is William Penn and some of his colleagues together with Delaware Indians, the Lenape Indians, in the moment when they are formalizing a peace treaty with each other that they were were able to honor and faithfully abide by uh, in a way that gave great honor to each party in it for more than 70 years. So, wild kingdom or peaceable kingdom? Which is the reality that we are living in when we have conversations about politics? And all of that brings me to the passage that we're looking at this morning. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Literally, brothers and sisters dearly loved. Right off the bat, James reminds us that two things are true in any conversation we have with any person about any topic as followers of Christ. First, I begin this conversation as someone who is dearly loved. That means that I am free to love you out of the overflow of God's love for me. This is why we've been putting so much focus um, in this year on God's love for us before we ever turn and start talking about 
God's call on us to go and love others. If, if we don't understand our belovedness, we're never going to be able to love effectively. But if we do, then I realize, we realize that we are free to love out of the overflow of God's love for us. That means you can love me in return or not. You can agree with me or not. You can be kind to me or not. I am the beloved of God, and nothing that you say or do will change that. Not only am I free to love you, as a child of God, I'm called to love you. John 13, 34, Jesus calls us as his followers to live a life of love. It's his primary command. And then in the next verse, John 13, 35, he says that our love should be the thing that makes it clear to the world that we are his followers more than anything else. Our love. So that means that no matter what other reasons or circumstances may have led you into whatever conversation you're in, once you're in it, the primary reason that you are in it is to love the person that you are talking with. Let me say that again, because this is a radically different way to think about conversations. This means that no matter what other reasons or circumstances may have led you into this conversation, once you're in it, the primary reason you're in it as a follower of Christ is to love the other person. And as we're going to learn more about as we shift more and begin to focus on loving others as beloved people, the, the biblical word at the core of this is agape love, which always describes a love that puts you first, that puts you ahead, that puts you above, even at cost to me. The love that we're called to live out in this world is a love that puts you first, puts you ahead, puts you above me, even if it costs me. So James reminds us that we are dearly loved, but he also reminds us that we begin every conversation with someone else who is a person who is great value in God's eyes, without exception. If the person I'm talking with is a fellow human being, as most people are, then they bear the image of God. And if the person I'm smirking, smirking with, <laughs> that'll be fun to define, if the person that I am speaking with is a fellow follower of Christ, then we have the same Heavenly Father, and you are my brother or sister. So either way, you are someone of great value, and the conversation that we're about to have is one in which I should reflect your great value back to you. You are loved by God as you jump into this conversation. You're about to enter into a conversation with someone else who is loved by God, and you are called in that conversation to love that person with the love of God that you've experienced. Even in a conversation about politics. Which all leads pretty naturally to the word of advice that comes, very practical advice that comes from James. My dear brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, dearly loved, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Here are four really, really practical principles when it comes to being quick to listen. Before I get to those, let me just ask this question. What are evangelicals known for most in the way that we relate to the rest of the world? I'm afraid that it's just the inversion of this passage. Be slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to get angry. 
Four practical principles about being quick to listen. First, ask questions. The best way to love someone in a conversation about politics is to listen. Actually, the best way to love someone in a conversation about anything is to listen. And the best way to listen to someone is to ask someone a question and then close your mouth and open your ears and enjoy what comes out of their mouth and enter into it. People love to share their opinions and their perspectives. It's one of the most important and practical ways that we can communicate love to someone in a conversation to ask them a question and to listen and show interest in their response. So ask questions. And remember that the, the, by far the best questions to ask are open-ended questions. That means that they're not yes or no questions, which have a way of sort of awkwardly uh, halting a conversation. An example of a yes-no question is, did you vote for President Trump? See how it kind of uh, doesn't really helpfully lead the conversation to the next place? Or are you a Republican? Open-ended questions are also not leading questions, which are usually ways of not asking questions at all, but of giving our own opinions. An example of a leading question is, you won't vote for President Trump, will you? That's not a question. It is. It's got a question mark at the end, but that's not a question. Or, um, you will vote for President Trump, won't you? Instead, an open-ended question is one in which the person is given the freedom to take the conversation in whatever way they please. And you give them the genuine freedom for them to do that. So an example would be, tell me some of the things that shape how you plan to vote for president this fall. You hear how that just invites whatever sort of response you may want to share? Another example. How have the last four years shaped your thinking about what the next four years should look like for our country? So, you've asked a question. And the other person has maybe tentatively just taken a big risk and they have shared with you an opinion or a perspective. So right now, the conversation is at a really precarious place. The best way to kill the conversation is for you to jump in with your opinion. Well, let me tell you what I think. Conversation over. Don't kill the conversation by jumping in with your opinion. Gently fan the conversation into flame by making it safe for the other person and honoring and respecting the other person by, I call it the George Herbert principle. Before he became a pastor, my favorite poet, George Herbert, taught rhetoric at Cambridge University. And whenever they had a discussion in class where two people were on different sides of an issue, this was his first rule. Repeat back the other person's view to their satisfaction before you respond. So if I hear you right, what you're saying is that you are really pleased with the Supreme Court appointments that have been made over the past few years. Is that right? Or... So what you're saying is you are really concerned about the behavior that you see modeled by our president when he is challenged or opposed. Is that correct? Is that what you're saying? And if they say, no, I don't think you got it, then ask their forgiveness and ask them to take another go at it, to explain to you what their convictions are. Ask them to try again and keep repeating it back to them 
until you get it right. And then, once you get it right, just thank them for sharing that. I am convinced that this single step has the potential to begin to transform our conversations about politics as followers of Christ. Just doing this faithfully. Is this what you're saying? Am I understanding you right? Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Okay, so I've asked them a question, and they have answered me, and I've repeated back to their satisfaction what they told me, and I thank them for that. Now can I jump in with my opinion? Nope. Proverbs 18.13 says, To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Nice, subtle passage. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Well, then now can I jump in with my evaluation of their opinion? Nope. In a TED Talk, sociologist or social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says, you can't just go charging in saying you're wrong and I'm right because everybody thinks they're right. So, Here's the next key. Don't respond with your opinion. Don't respond with judgment or evaluation. Instead, ask a follow-up question. Here are three examples of follow-up questions that are not exactly conducive to continuing a conversation. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Or, how in the world could you see it that way? Or, and this is something that has been communicated from some in our congregation to others in our congregation, sadly. And you call yourself a Christian? End of conversation, end of respect. Welcome to the wild kingdom. Despite the way that they are portrayed in our polarized world, most people are not idiots. For the most part, they hold their opinions for reasons that are reasonable within their perspective and within their understanding. So explore their perspective and explore their understanding. Find out where they're coming from. Here's what a good open-ended follow-up question might sound like. So you mean you see it this way? I find that really interesting. Tell me more about that. No judgment, no evaluation, just open invitation. Or... I'm curious, how did you arrive at that position? Most people are not idiots, and most people are not evil-hearted villains. It isn't fair for us as Christians to require non-Christians to share our moral framework, right? And it isn't fair to require Christians to to arrive at the exact same conclusion about a complex political issue that we have arrived at. That's not reasonable. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. If someone has a moral or a political point of view that is different from yours, even if it is baffling to you, suspend your moral judgment and seek to understand it better. You might ask something like this. I'm really curious. What would you say are some of the influences that have shaped your perspective on this issue? Or you could ask, Is there some moral tradition or framework that you turn to when you think about issues like this? I'd really like to hear more about that. Or you could say, how has your own life experience shaped your view on this? 
You don't need to memorize a, a list of open-ended follow-up questions. Just practice curiosity. Be fascinated. Be intrigued. And let that drive you in the conversation. And just keep asking questions. And when they've shared, keep repeating their answers back to them to their satisfaction. And keep thanking them for what they've shared. And then keep asking questions. And then listen for what you can affirm. Stay with me here. This is a place where the us-them partisan divide in our politics does not serve us. It actually conspires against a loving conversation about politics because it misleads us into thinking that political solutions are simple either-or choices, which become us-them choices. But all political positions are compromises. And they're compromises that we arrive at by trying our hardest to figure out how to balance and weigh a whole variety of different things, all of which we value. So here's what's true. There is no candidate or issue where there is an absolutely clear single Christian political response, however much you may be convinced that there is. I'm not saying that the Bible is unreliable or wishy-washy or the biblical morals are up for grabs. Not at all. I think the Bible is clear about so many things. I'm saying that all politics happen east of Eden. We are all fallen people living in a fallen world within fallen societies, and we are trying to bring a whole host of, of revealed Christian principles and biblical values to bear on incredible incredibly complex societal issues. And we live in a society in which many of the people we're, we're speaking with and trying to arrive at solutions with don't share our starting point, our basic religious or moral convictions. And as a result, there are nearly as many opinions as there are people in the conversation. So yes, absolutely, we can codify what the Bible teaches on a whole variety of different themes. We can say this is what the Bible teaches about human life, or about sexual purity, or about spiritual gifts, or about caring for the environment, or about stewardship, love for neighbor, whatever it is. And there would be general agreement among us as followers of Christ. But there is not one universally accepted Christian position on political issues. There's not one obviously right person for Christians to vote for, for political office. And if we were to weight our values and our priorities in a slightly different way from the person we are speaking with, we might find that we would vote on different sides of the same issue or vote for a different candidate in the same race. Let me give you just one example of how every political issue is a compromise in which we're trying to weigh a variety of different competing values in very complex issues. As Christians, we believe that the Bible teaches clearly that God gives the gift of life and that we are to honor and sanctify that gift. So carrying that biblical teacher, teaching over into the political realm, we can affirm that abortion is wrong, right? I mean, it's, it's taking the life of a child. Can we affirm as a political position that all abortion is always wrong? I've sat in my office with a woman who was raped, and she was pregnant. 
And she was wrestling with whether she could accept as her own the child that she carried. Cannot imagine being in that situation. And I have sat with a woman who had a medical condition that literally put her in a position of having to choose between her life and the life of the child that she carried. She agonized with that decision, especially because she had other children. The first one kept her child, and the second one aborted her child. So what is the, the, the clear, universal, Christian, political outworking of our biblical convictions on this issue? The biblical teaching about the value of human life is black and white, but that doesn't make the political solution black and white. I believe that we can have much more honest and honoring conversations with one another, especially with those whose starting points are very different from our own, if we keep in mind that all political decisions are compromises in complex issues, and they all seek to balance a variety of competing values. This is the path to discovering what we can affirm in the other person's perspective. Jonathan Haidt, the author of The Righteous Mind, uh, the, the social psychologist that I mentioned, has given his, uh, his academic life to studying political perspectives. And he has identified, through a, a bunch of national, nationwide research, he has identified a cluster of six major values that shape most people's opi political opinions. They boil down to six things that are held in some sort of tension. And all six of these are held by almost all of us, but we give... Each of us, as different people, give them a different weight of importance related to each other. For those who are social conservatives, they tend to elevate three of these six values. They hold all six of them, but they tend to elevate three of them. One of those is loyalty or unity related to the, the group or the society, the nation as a whole, the kind of being the in-group. One of them is authority, and this has to do with order, maintaining boundaries and establishing kind of right practices and rules. And the third is sanctity and purity and upholding particular values, identifying things as kind of inviolable um, or inalienable. All of these come together to, to form this sort of most sacred overarching value of, of um, stability. And then for those who are more progressive politically, they tend to elevate, they hold all six, but they tend to elevate three other values, care for the needy, freedom from oppression, and fairness within the, the systems um, and processes. So for them, their most sacred value is what you could call responsiveness. So let me just repeat the, the bottom line here. Those who are conservatives tend to elevate the overarching value of stability, managing or maintaining unity and order, clarifying boundaries, and holding fast to underlying values. Every single one of us can affirm the need for stability in our nation. And those who are liberal tend to elevate the overarching value of responsiveness, adjusting to needs that surface, lifting up those who get missed or who fall through the cracks, and making changes along the way as necessary. And again, every single one of us would acknowledge the need for responsiveness within the overall system. 
So we all value all six of these to various degrees, and we can all appreciate the need for them. For instance, we can appreciate the need for stability, such as when King Josiah called the nation back to covenant faithfulness in 2 Kings 22, and he kicked the pagan priests and their altars out of the temple grounds, and he ended child sacrifice and ritual prostitution that was taking place at some of these shrines and, and high places. Yes, we need stability. We can also all appreciate the need for responsiveness, such as we see in the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, and what he modeled when he sidestepped traditional decorum, and he crossed over established lines of ritual cleanliness, and he crossed over racial ethnic lines and took care of a foreigner who had been hurt. So a great way to honor the person who is sharing with you is to be able to find and affirm places where you uphold the same essential values that they do. So let me just give you an example. Think about the issue of the border between Mexico and the United States. The question of letting in new immigrants is largely framed, very unfortunately, as two opposing views over which we are divided. You are either for letting those people in or you are against it. But that is a false and a divisive and an unhelpful way to frame the issue. We can all agree, every single one of us, that we can't let everyone in. That would jeopardize our stability as a nation. But we can also all agree, every single one of us, that we shouldn't keep everyone out. There are legitimate needs, for instance, among children growing up in gang-controlled regions of Central America, where their lives are hanging in the balance, needs to which we feel compelled to be responsive as a country and as individuals with our freedoms and our resources. So now, all of a sudden, the entire conversation has shifted from one issue over which we are all divided and yelling at each other, to two values, stability and responsiveness, over which we can all agree. And now what we need to do is to work together, to work collaboratively as partners to find the best way to express and to balance these two very important values. So being quick to listen, part of what it means is to be listening for what shapes the heart of the person that you are speaking with, and honoring them by hearing that. And we do that when we ask questions, when we repeat back what's been said to the other person's satisfaction, and then we ask more questions, and then we listen for what we can affirm in what the other person is saying. In spite of the, the fact that he is an atheist and actually uses some of his uh, conversation tips to try to help people out of their faith, I really like Peter Bogosian's summary from his book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. Um, the, the first chapter is really remarkable. He says, most elements of civil discourse come down to a single theme, making the other person in the conversation a partner and not an adversary. To accomplish this, you need to understand what you want from the conversation, which, as we've clarified, is love fundamentally in every conversation. To make charitable assumptions about the other person's intentions, that's listening for what you can affirm and what they're saying, what is the, the overarching value that they're communicating, and seeking back and forth interaction as opposed to delivering a message. Research uh, proves that when people sense that you are delivering a message to them, that they shut down and don't receive it. 
Learning to listen, he says, is the first step. And then he goes on, abandon adversarial thinking, the idea of winning, and adopt collaborative thinking, listening and learning. Shift from this person is my opponent who needs to understand what I'm saying to this person is my partner in a conversation. And I can learn from him or her, including learning why he or she believes what he or she believes. So I want to have us wrap up these practical tips by having us actually try this. I want this to be a safe setting in which we can do this together. If at any point you'd rather not share, that is just fine. You could just say that. I'd rather not share. But this is the conviction that I have. If we can't do this here, where can we do it? So what I'm going to ask you to do is find someone else with whom you can have a short conversation. And if you would, please, I'm going to walk us through three questions I want you to ask the other person, and they'll ask you the same questions. Uh, Be listening for my guiding from up front so I don't have to constantly kind of try to barge in on your discussion. That will be helpful. And we're just going to do quick kind of one or two sentence answers. And, uh, And so it will unfold with you asking a question, the person answering you, you repeating their answer back to that person to their satisfaction, and then thanking them for sharing that. So I think there's a screen that we've got that you have how to talk about politics 101. Here we go. So here's, um, find, if you would first, please, just find someone you can have a conversation with. Make sure you know their name. And then if you would just look up here as soon as you do that, and I'll be ready to lead us into the next thing. All right, everybody good? Everybody have a conversation, partner? Okay, let me break in on your discussions, which have already started. I love it. So first question, we're going to start really safe with this one. I would like you to ask this person, what is one thing that informs how they choose a favorite restaurant? What is one thing that informs how they choose a favorite restaurant? You ask them that, they'll answer you, you repeat it back to their satisfaction. Is this right, is this what you said? And then thank them, and then we'll swap. You've got about 15 or 20 seconds. All right, now the other person, ask them the question. Go the other direction. All right, I'm gonna break in on your conversations now. Great job. Thanks for giving yourself to this. This is awesome. I love this. All right, so second question, getting a little more on a personal level, sharing a little more deeply out of your own heart. Ask the person that you're talking with, what is one thing that informs how you choose who will be a good friend for you? What's one thing that informs how you choose a good friend? Um, So ask that question to the person and then respond to their answer. Okay, the other person, please share now. Change sides. All right, great, thank you. Let's end those conversations for a moment and if I could get your attention again. Are we gonna do this one more time? This time, this is the question I'd like you to ask. And again, you have the freedom to say, you know, I'd really, I'd really rather not share and that's just fine and, and that will be honored. Um, what I'd like you to share is, ask, this, ask the other person, what is one thing that informs how you will make a decision about who to vote for when November comes around? What's one thing that will inform your decision about who to vote for for president? Ask that question, repeat back the answer to that person's satisfaction. All right, the other person, please turn the conversation the other direction, the other person, ask them. All right, I'm going to bring those conversations to an end. Thank you for doing that.
I love that as far as I can tell, nobody just died in this discussion we just had. All right, if I could just have your attention back up here, please. Thank you. Covenant family, thank you for risking this. It was such a beautiful thing to watch these conversations unfolding. We can do this. We can do this. So some closing thoughts. We won't have our closing song. Let me just um, uh, share these closing thoughts and then uh, lead us in prayer. Last week when I was praying in preparation for this message, a poem sort of formed in my head, and it's printed in the uh, sermon notes section of your bulletin. You may want to turn there, uh, kind of get an idea of visually how it's laid out. It's kind of part of the, the way the poem is intended to communicate. And a couple things that might be helpful for you to know uh, before I read this. First of all, a, a signum, which is a word that I use in this, is a large tower bell that was used like in the Middle Ages to, um, to ring the hours for prayer or to signal an alarm or to sound the death knell if someone in the community had died. And Godspell is the archaic way of saying gospel. It's the old English way of writing the word. Uh, and then the, the last thing that you need to know is just, and you are probably familiar with this, the classic quote from Archimedes, who said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. And that's kind of the, what the poem is framed around. All right, so here's the poem called Give Me a Lever. Give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, to brace it, to displace it, and I shall move the world. Wrist it and twist it and rest it to my side. Give me a love deep enough and a signum by which to toll it, to tell it, to God spell it, and I shall move the heart of the world, ring it and sing it and bring it to his side. Would you pray with me? The prayer attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.